that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, January 10th. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and we're doing a rundown of some major tech news. We've got Fool.com's Evan New with me on Skype. Evan, we haven't chatted in a while. What's what's on tap for you in 2020? I don't really have any big plans. You having a good new year so far? Yeah, I am. You know, I, I didn't think I was going to be buying a house in 2020, but I might be in a position where I'm buying a house uh, kind of unexpectedly. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So I'm exploring that. It's a little bit of a fixer-upper type situation. Uh family friend has a house that might be up for sale and I might be scooping it up. So if any of our listeners have any DIY horror stories or tips when it comes to buying a house that needs significant work, please let me know. I'm still kind of in that phase where I'm looking for someone to talk me out of it, but it checks a lot of the boxes (laughs) for what I want in a place in DC. So if there's an oak tree, don't buy it. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like a story from experience there, Austin. I have two of them and I also have tens of thousands of acorns every year. Well, so that's the thing. You live in Virginia. This is a house in Washington, D.C. We don't really have lawns in Washington, D.C. in the same that's way. That's true. Yeah. So I'll keep that in mind, although for this property in particular, not not so much of an issue. I've got like enough space for a grill and a smoker and a couple chairs out on that patio. But um, I will keep you posted. And if you see me slowly spiraling over the course of 2020, you'll know exactly how that decision has gone, guys. <laughs> I will not be buying any houses this year, despite my wife constantly wanting to buy new houses. <laughs> well, you guys are kind of settled up at this point. You've got the the recording studio in the basement, Evan. You're you're good to go. Yeah, but she oh, she's just kind of constantly looking at houses. It's just it's, it's like a hobby for her. It's like looking at houses. Well, in, in fairness, <laughs> I remember being on vacation as a kid with my parents, and I'm an only child, so like you're always hanging out with parents, and. I remember my dad was always just like looking at the real estate circulars for all of these areas that he would be uh, vacationing. And I never got it. And now as an adult, I totally get it because you're like doing the math in your head. You're trying to arbitrage the rent and mortgage and stuff like that. The idle fantasies of buying houses is something that I can appreciate now in a way that I couldn't have possibly done back then. So I kind of understand where your (laughs) wife's coming from, Evan. (laughs) Anyways, long tangent. Listeners, write in if you have any ideas for DIY or house stuff. I would really appreciate it. But we are not talking about that today. We are talking about some tech news. Um, We're going to specifically talk about Grubhub and Spotify, two companies with some pretty big news that came out. Grubhub got a lot of the headlines this week because the Wall Street Journal reported that the company has hired an external advisor or external advisors to explore strategic options, including a possible sale. Anytime you see that kind of news, it's naturally going to stoke a lot of interest in a company, Evan. Right. Strategic options is just a euphemism for we might be trying to sell ourselves. <laughs> and of course, they you know denied it and they came out with this statement kind of saying, you know, there's unequivocally no process in place. We're not trying to sell the company. But I don't know how much I buy those types of PR responses because I I could see themselves, you know, I could see Grubhub trying to find a buyer because they've been kind of on the ropes the past few months. And I think that there is, you know, a case to be made that this industry needs to consolidate a little bit more. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of the PR team's job almost. You're almost always going to get some answer kind of like that, especially if it's early on in the process of potentially selling. Um, and, and just to follow on to what we got from the Wall Street Journal, we also got something, I think, from the New York Post uh, saying that Walmart and several other grocers have expressed interest in buying Grubhub. So even if it's not true that Grubhub is shopping itself, it seems as though there is some interest in that 
that company. We're going to kind of explore why this is the leader in food delivery. They've got a ton of partnerships with restaurants and a really big entrenched user base. They're kind of one of the first movers in food delivery. But I think we need to rewind a little bit and look at the most recent quarterly results that we have for Grubhub because there was one narrative for the stock for most of last year, and that came to a screeching halt in the fall of 2019. Right. So last quarter, they, in, when they reported in October, uh, the stock absolutely tanked. I think it dropped like 40% or something because uh, revenue came in under estimates. I think it was $322 million versus $330 million of the consensus estimates. Daily active grubs, which is kind of their term for just orders, <laughs> uh, was up only 10%, which is at the low end of their guidance. Uh, and then they cut their full-year guidance quite a bit. I think it was down by about $60 million. Um, because you know, the, a lot of people just aren't ordering as much, as much as they used to. People are not particularly loyal to the platform, um, so they had kind of baked higher expectations into. You know, they, they had all these new diners coming in, new users on the platform, and they basically expected these new users to to have a certain level of order rates based on their you know their observed history of cohorts in the past. And then these new diners just simply were not ordering as much as they had thought they were going to. Yeah, you kind of go through different phases as a disruptor. You know, you you go through the early phases where you are enjoying having created a space, and I think they were in that space for quite some time. And then at a certain point, other people realize that there's a pretty good opportunity there, and they start entering the market too. And really, the, the key there is, can you maintain your market share? Can you maintain loyalty with your customers? If so, you've got a really successful business. If not, you're going to run into some of the issues that Grubhub currently has. Right. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's to me, I see a lot of parallels with this food delivery service and like ride sharing, which we've talked about quite a bit, obviously, on the show. And as you know, I've mentioned before, I'm not a big fan of the ride sharing industry because of for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's commoditized. The, the drivers don't make good money. They're treated as contractors. And it's a lot of the same drivers that do these. There's a big overlap in terms of the drivers that do ride sharing as well as food delivery. Uh, of course, you have Uber Eats, which is very much the same network of drivers as doing food delivery as well as ride sharing. So if you look at Grubhub, it's it's the same thing. It's like it's you know really leaning on these gig economy contract drivers. You have these two platforms that are competing very heavily for users. They're both discounting very aggressively for a commoditized service, which is just not a appealing business to me. The pull quote for me from the management commentary when they released those earnings that were disappointing was from their CEO, who said, online diners are becoming more promiscuous, which I think is kind of a, a funny word to use, but it really gets at the idea that you know you aren't just going to be a Grubhub user. If you're in an environment where there are all these competitors they're all going to be competing, and they're going to be offering pretty compelling deals, whether it's uh, discounts or you know referral codes or things like that. That's going to eat into their profitability, and that's where you get that promiscuity that customers uh, seem to be demonstrating because you know it's it's kind of more of a customer's market than a business's market. Right, it just it just boils down to price, you know, and particularly when you have these coupons for like free delivery or whatever. That's all you care about. I mean, like Grubhub has some advantages, I think. Uh, you know they have a lot of integrations with restaurant uh, POS point of sale systems, as well as uh, integrating the menus into their apps. So they have a couple of these things, but at the same time, it's you know as a consumer, do you care about that over the price? Like, no, the price is still like the most important thing, and that's why these companies just keep having to spend so much money on these incentives and promotions and discounts. Yeah, at the end of the day, you want your food, and you want the food 
deliver to be as cheap as possible. And you're going to stack those options against each other. And management has made the point before that they believe and have generally believed that the business cannot generate significant profits on just the logistics side of what they do. And that's the getting the food from A to B because it is a commodity service. So I think for them as a company, the key is going to be proving value to restaurants, building out that huge network and making it even more dominant, making it the go-to place. Continuing to work with enterprise customers, you can bring in a lot of business that way. Um, and then, you know, basically proving out to customers that they deserve to be the only app for them, which is a tough sell. Right. And on top of that, I mean, you and I have also talked about how like Grubhub has done a bunch of shady things to kind of take more money from the restaurants in terms of like uh, like redirecting phone calls and internet traffic to like these websites that look like the restaurants, but they're really operated by Grubhub. And basically, the net effect is that Grubhub just inflates their commissions. And I just think that's really shady too. And you know, they're hurting all these local businesses that are like their big partners. And that's one of their kind of solutions to uh, you know to your point of like we might not be able to make money just on the delivery side of it, but then. If they're going to just just try to take more money out of the restaurant's pockets, that's not great either. Yeah, and and I think that this company does face some existential threats. You mentioned a lot of the gig economy things before, and I think that they are going to be uh, under the microscope for regulators for quite some time, just because of all of these things that have come out, um, and and you know deservedly so. I, I think a lot of these headlines don't look particularly good, especially when you're talking about relationships with more mom and pop type restaurants and less local chains or national chains. Right. And I mean, everything's cutthroat here. I mean, DoorDash overtook Grubhub last year in the US to become the number one uh, food delivery platform. So Grubhub is now number two. Uber Eats is number three. DoorDash has also had a bunch of controversy and criticism around its, like, its, tipping, pol- its tipping policies and how much of that actually goes to the driver. So, I mean, this whole industry is kind of just ripe with a bunch of, you know, cracks and flaws that, you know, really undermine sustainability of you know, it becoming a long-term profitable business for any of these companies. So, I think that's kind of where some of this speculation of acquisitions and consolidation is coming from. And you certainly would expect it when you see a business that generally is in market leading position go on sale. You know, for them to have sold off so much, they've retraced some of those losses, but um, they are at a discount to where they have been in the past. I think that naturally invites some of the speculation about who these buyers might be. We mentioned before Walmart could be interested. I think there are some other e-commerce companies that could make good use of the network that Grubhub has. Right, there's some analysts saying that Amazon actually be a good, uh, a well-suited buyer because Amazon it, it has Amazon's been sending some mixed signals, right? So they last year they invested in UK-based delivery, uh, Deliveroo. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, <laughs> but that's you know it's a local food delivery service company, and the regulators are looking at that investment, all that stuff. But and then a couple months later, they announced they're closing Amazon Restaurants, which was their competing service in the U.S. So the, kind of some mixed signals there. But I think the long term, Amazon is still very interested in the space. I think that they're having a hard time building their own thing, their own service from scratch. Uh, but at the same time, if they you know they have so much money, they could just go buy the buy their way in as a number two. And there's a lot of ways that that kind of makes sense because, you know, they're increasingly relying on the same gig economy you know, contract drivers for their Amazon Flex program, which is their last mile delivery network that has really been ramping up quite a bit. They've been doing a lot more food delivery from uh, Whole Foods, so like grocery deliveries. So I think there is a case to be made that Amazon might you know, could make sense as a buyer for Grubhub, uh, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, and this is a company that's committed to trying to bring more and more grocery purchases online. You know, you look at most conventional measures of e-commerce, and it tends to focus on the retail side of things. And Amazon is absolutely dominant there. 
most of the overall spending that is not happening online via e-commerce is more in the buckets of buying gas and buying groceries. And so, you know, you, you saw that Whole Foods acquisition, and they clearly prize that market. You could see a very good integration coming with um, with Grubhub as well. Right, and they just recently made. Um Amazon Fresh, which was the grocery delivery, it used to be an extra fee, like you had to pay on top of Prime, but now it's included for free in Prime. So I do, you know, it does show me that they are still pretty interested in scaling that out, um, which is where you know a, a local restaurant delivery service, you know, could really come into play. Okay, we're going to talk about some recent news for Spotify that could be a game changer for the business. But before we do, I just want to remind our listeners that if you're looking for stock ideas, we have a special stock advisor offer for our industry-focused listeners. Just head over to if.fool.com and you can get one year of unlimited access for $99. That's if.fool.com. Okay, so Evan, we talked about how Grubhub was a company facing some core business issues with the idea that they are in kind of a commodity business and they are trying to figure out how to make the numbers work as competition comes into play. And I think you could probably say that some of those things are also true for Spotify. You know, one of the big issues this company has faced is that they don't have a ton of control over their cost structure because they are in, you know, a business where the costs are kind of decided by music royalties. And they don't have a lot of pricing power because there are a lot of streaming options out there. Right. So they are kind of getting pinched there. And the, the biggest challenge to your point is that you know, royalties are a variable cost. So you know, the more people listen, the more Spotify has to pay. And they're charging the same price every month. Like they're not charging you based on how much you listen. So you know, it, that does make it really hard for this company to scale. But uh, they're starting to show some signs of it, uh, including with some of the podcast stuff they've been doing. Yeah, they, they had kind of had an interesting 2019 because they made this huge acquisition buying Gimlet Media. Um, this is kind of one of these podcasting giants and showing that they are interested in getting into programming outside of just music. And I think that's smart because there's really not a lot separating Spotify from Apple Music. You know, they are very good with their Discover Weekly playlists. I think the Spotify wrapped at the year end is, is fantastic. But at the end of the day, both of those platforms allow you to stream music. There's not a lot of exclusivity there. So they made all these podcast acquisitions with the idea that they are going to be providing exclusive content, um, kind of like a Netflix for audio type pitch. Right. And, you know, it's worth remembering that their outgoing CFO used to be the CFO of Netflix back when they started, you know, when Netflix started its whole original content strategy. So there, there is a lot of cross-pollination of strategy there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Daniel Ek, so Spotify CEO Daniel Ek has made a point that, you know, Spotify is not just about music, it's really about audio, all of audio, which can include, you know, things like podcasts. And they made three acquisitions, including Gimlet, like you mentioned uh, last year. They spent about $400 million total and it's a pretty big bet on podcasts. And podcasts, in contrast to music, are more of, if you're funding a original po- uh, content in, ter- in terms of podcasts, it's like a fixed cost that you can scale up and as you monetize that across your base. So that you know, incrementally will help their cost structure uh, and, and really give them a little bit more optionality. Yeah. And, and what we're seeing with some news from this week is kind of the next step in that process for them. Uh, We got some news that at the Consumer Electronics Show, Spotify announced streaming ad insertion, which will be the company's proprietary ad technology. And I look at this, and I think it's huge for so many reasons, Evan, You know, because we are in a place where podcast advertising is still pretty primitive. You know, we have reads that are done by us, the hosts, and they are generally hard-coded onto the episodes. 
there's some data that advertisers get in terms of downloads, demographic, if the shows have pulled their audience and they have a good feel for who's listening. But you don't really get the granularity that you get with a lot of digital media. I mean, when we, when we were doing prep for the show, I remember you had a really good analog for kind of how to explain where podcasts are at now. Yeah, it might just be a lot of like linear TV advertising versus digital TV advertising. So, you know, in kind of traditional TV broadcasting, you know, advertisers, they don't really know who's watching, you know, like they don't have uh, data on how many times their ad is being viewed. They have to look at, you know, these third party ratings from companies and they get like a general sense of like, oh, this demographic tends to like this type of show. So we want to go after that demographic. So we're just kind of, you know, going to broadcast our ad out there. But, you know, you don't have the kind of detailed measurement and analytics that digital platforms do. So if you, in comparison to like, uh, you know, streaming TV like Hulu or Roku, those companies that are really, you know, capitalizing on cord cutting and all that de- advertising moving over to the digital side, you know, there you have lots of like analytics. You have much more granular detail. Who's listening? How many times is, it, is this ad being, you know, seen or ad impressions? All sorts of stuff. So this is a really compelling pitch for advertisers who, at the end of the day, are kind of the customers for this uh, for Spotify. But I think if you're looking at Spotify's financials and just trying to figure out like how this company can really make it work long term, this could be a pretty big deal because it does give them ownership over their cost structure in a way that royalties kind of don't right now. And we've talked about it plenty on the show before, but digital advertising is such a lucrative market to be in. Right, and you know, with them rolling out these tools, of course, they're going to entitle themselves to a cut of ad revenue and you know some type of revenue sharing agreement with content creators. Unlike the current state of it, which you know, for example, Apple's always been the the top player in podcasts. If you're reading, if you're reading an ad on a podcast, Apple has no idea, and they're not getting a cut, and they're they don't really care. I mean, they're happy enough as it is, but it really, I would say that innovation in podcast advertising has been stagnant over the past 20 years for the most part, even though it's growing, there's not a lot of new stuff coming up because Apple has never really cared to really kind of take the lead on innovating on this on this front. Yeah, I think that's kind of a curious element of all of this. You know, Apple was really first in podcasts. I mean, the reason we call a podcast a podcast is because of the iPod, right? Like that's the etymology of that word. And I think there are probably a whole generation of people who are now listening to podcasts who never owned an iPod and are wondering why we call it that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're almost so removed from it, but but the source of it was Apple, and they haven't really done all that much to advance podcasts or advance advertising in podcasts over the last couple of years. Evan, how or why do you think Spotify is beating them here? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. You know, I mean, they they just kind of were happy to sit on their laurels. There wasn't a lot of competition to spur them into, like, putting any effort into it. So I think it is a little embarrassing, but at the same time, it's also pretty expected because Apple hates advertising businesses and they just have this utter disdain for because, you know, when you're using user data to target ads, there's or there are inherent privacy compromises and Apple just d- doesn't want to compromise on that front at all and they're, they're just not willing to budge. Whereas Spotify, you know, Spotify is, you know, Daniel Leck has mentioned, Spotify is a logged in environment. So you're logged in. The, the platform knows who you are. They know your, where, you, where you're located, how old you are, your tastes, what kind of content you like to consume on the platform. So they have a lot of information they can use to target ads to you. And I think that that is going to end up being a pretty powerful advantage, particularly when you acknowledge that Apple is not interested in this advertising stuff. You know, like on the music side of the business, Spotify has the ad-supported tier that's free. Apple Music does not. So I don't think Apple's going to 
really follow them here. Like Apple's not. I I I don't see Apple getting into this podcast advertising stuff in the same way that Spotify is. So if Apple's going to basically sit still, <laughs> Spotify has a big opportunity here. Yeah, and and it will be something that I think dramatically shapes this business over the next five or ten years if it's done right. You mentioned that they have the ad-supported model. That part of their business does about sixteen percent gross margins. Their premium business, where people are paying, does about twenty six percent gross margins. That does not leave a ton left over to pay all the other bills. But if you have a business that's doing somewhere in the neighborhood of forty or fifty percent margins, you have way more control over the cost, and it scales so well. I could see this being a real game changer for them uh, over the next decade. And when you look at some of the estimates for podcast advertising, I saw one that it was saying over a billion dollars by twenty twenty one. If Spotify is able to get a slice of that with some high margin revenue coming in, it could be huge. Right, and, and there's just so many ways it plays into Spotify's broader service because they've said that. People that are listening to podcasts are having strong conversion rates from free users to paid users. There's the ad technology, the insertion technology that we're talking about is really based on the same technology they already use on the music side of the business. So there's a lot of efficiencies there, just deploying the same type of technology to the podcast. You know, they just really feeds into each other because they've also said there's much higher levels of engagement. Uh, I mean, it, it all makes a lot of sense from, you know, if you look at Daniel X's vision that he laid out when he kind of announced that they're making this big move into it, it, it just makes a lot of sense. To, and, you know, to your point, like, I think the next decade is going to be pretty exciting for Spotify. I think the pitch to podcasters is pretty good, too. You know, we, we don't really run into this quite as much with the Motley Fool podcast because so much of what we do is talking about the news of the market. We're talking about earnings results. And so we're kind of bound in time to what we're discussing. And a lot of the stuff that we do, because we're doing things daily, is only relevant for so long. But there are a lot of programs out there that have come out you know, five years ago and still have tens or hundreds of thousands of people that are listening. And I could see a really compelling case for having dynamic ad insertion in there and allowing you to update the ads that are in and continue to monetize that content in a way that is fresh and relevant for marketers. Right, and because you know, they can really drag out the useful life of this content, much in the way that Netflix amortizes their content over many, many years, because they know they can get such good use out of it. It's it's the exact same thing with Spotify. You know, if they seed and fund these these podcasts, they can use those for many, many years, and you know, like as you mentioned, just keep monetizing with ads that are dynamic and targeted, and as opposed to just kind of like the same manual manually read ads and every every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I remember when we were first talking about Spotify, I think we were slacking about it and you said, you know, my my thesis is this company is too big for it to not be relevant and make some money at some point basically. Like someone needs to make money in streaming music because the music industry needs streaming music to be successful and Spotify is basically, you know, first in the race there and you're also an Apple shareholder so you kind of have bets on both there. Um I think I I understood that thesis back then. I think that this Business and this development is is a great kicker to a business that's already kind of in a market leading position. Right, I think there are huge implications for the cost structure. And even though I invested in Spotify, like my biggest concern has always been this cost structure stuff we've been talking about with the scalability and you know the royalties. I just kind of figured, you know, the, the, as you mentioned, the music industry is just so reliant on streaming. Streaming is driving this renaissance that even though they do have to pay these huge costs to the record labels, the record labels need them too. So there has to be some middle ground where Spotify can make some money. And then at the same time, now that they're expanding this podcast, that has a huge whole new like 
horizon of possibility in terms of costs and profitability. Before we get too excited, Spotify is rolling us out with its original and exclusive shows. So they're going to be starting there. I think this is something, though, where if you see success and you see it being rolled out to more and more shows and advertisers really gravitating towards it, it's a sign that this business is going to be taking off. And that, for me, this this kind of shoots up on the watch list because um, it makes something that I think users love. You know, I don't know anyone who hates Spotify. So um, they have a product that people love. And now Austin Morgan behind the glass just raised his hand. But he's like a Pandora subscriber. So, I mean, like, take that with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I don't know anyone who really does not like Spotify. And if you can build a good business financially uh, that complements a business that customers love, then you really got something. Right. I mean, I, I agree that they're somewhat commoditized, but I actually think that their content discovery technology is better than Apple's currently. And I, I do think that is a pretty big advantage for the time being. But whether or not Apple can catch up on the discovery side, you know, it remains to be seen. But these companies are both evolving very quickly. They're both playing off each other. You know, it's kind of funny because, you know, Spotify is first to streaming and then Apple followed them with Apple Music in like 2015. And now Spotify is kind of t- turning the tables and Apple's always been in podcasts and now Spotify is coming to podcasts. You know, I mean, they're they're both kind of heading the same direction. So I, th- I think this competition will be kind of interesting to watch. Well, since you mentioned Apple, Evan, I've got two iTunes reviews of the show. And and as folks that have been listening over the last couple weeks might remember, um, anyone who drops us a five-star review on iTunes, I will give you a shout-out at the end of the show. If you have any questions in the review, I'll be happy to answer them. So this week, I've got two. I got one from Matt G, who says, because of the Motley Fool podcast, I've gone from someone who knew nothing about investing to feeling confident about helping my family live a smarter, happier, and richer life in less than two years. Thank you all. That's awesome. I, I love to hear that. I mean, Matt, we're, we're learning right alongside you. I think so much of what we do, the joy of this is getting to talk about new companies and continuing to learn about the evolving landscape with investing. So, so thank you for kind of joining us in that journey. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm learning every single day, and I love hearing from people that are enjoying doing it uh, over on the listener side. Our second review uh, from eBunny wrote, Hey guys, long-time listener, first-time reviewer, love the show, very informative. A lot of the other finance business shows I listen to can be a little dry, but these guys keep it upbeat and entertaining. I guess all that talk about the housing stuff is what really gets people. Keep up the good work. The only problem I have is with the new opening, woof. Is that bad or what? (laughs) And I will will say to eBunny, there's a lot of great compliments in there. I think I like us being challenged a little bit on the intro. Some backstory on how we arrived at that we knew that it was time for a facelift, and we wanted to do something that kind of gave a sense of all of the different people that are contributing to the show, all the different things that we talk about on a week-to-week basis. We tested it out internally. People seem to like it. We've been getting some pretty polarizing reactions, though. Isn't that the case, Austin? Oh, yeah. People either love it or they hate it. <laughs> but I can tell you this. There's a little button on the bottom right-hand corner. <laughs> Skips forward 30 seconds. The intro is exactly 27 seconds long. So if you don't care what day of the week it is, you can just tap that button. You'll be right in there. So there's a pro tip. If you don't like our new intro, you can just skip ahead. Um, I'm hoping that this is a situation where, you know, like when Facebook rolls out a new interface and everyone freaks out, there are some people that love it. There are some people who swear it off. And then in people a couple don't months, like change. people don't like change. And so, especially for something that you're used to listening to all the time and hearing in the same way. And so, I'm hoping that some of the folks that don't like it will come around. I will say, though, it was really fun to have Austin render a couple different versions of the intro. And so, who knows? Maybe we'll mix it up a little bit. 
my my favorite part of the new intro. I don't know if this is something that all of our listeners have caught. Is the "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" reference uh, that's kind of embedded in there with the wild card. So if if you are a fan of the show and know what I'm talking about, there's your little Easter egg. And if you're not, you know, check it out. It's a it's a not a family friendly show in any way. Uh, I would never watch that with kids, but it's a very fun show uh, if you're an adult. Um, I think we're gonna wrap things up there. Evan, Austin, thank you guys so much for for hopping in. Thanks for having me. Of course. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today and all of his work making that new intro. If listeners do like it, I'm, I'm sure Austin would like to hear about that too on Twitter or via email. So if you're enjoying the if you're enjoying the new introduction, feel free to write in. We're gonna play you guys out today with our new Friday favorite. This is Checks and Balances by Full Time Fool Burke and Graffia. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. I've got a million dollars. It's hypothetical. Large amount in my bank account. It's parenthetical. The money I'm made of is theoretical, so in theory I've got it good. My fat wallet is on a diet. My balance sheet is lopsided. My income statement is keeping silent, but let's keep one thing understood. I need checks. I need balances. Life's a mess. With financial challenges, checks and balances When things get tough, do you do it for money or do you do it for love? My cold hard cash is soft and tropical My deep pockets are merely topical I hit the big time, it was microscopical But don't you get it, I am no fool I own a bank, I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy Cracked him open, what a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess, with financial challenges Checks and balances, when things get tough Do you do it for money, or do you do it for love? I know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I'm cashing in on triple coupons Soup kitchen's calling, saying the soup's on I sing for my supper and get my groove on I still know how to have fun checks I need balances life's a mess with financial challenges checks and balances when things get tough do you do it for money or do you do it for love
know a cheapskate always has a headache Trying to get something for free None more wiser is the miser Always lives in misery I own a bank, I call him Piggy Brought home the bacon, he got a little wiggy Cracked him open, what a pity His inner life was pitiful I need checks, I need balances Life's a mess, with financial challenges Checks and balances, when things get tough Do you do it for money, or do you 